Hey, this is John, and you're listening to the Mosaic Young Adult Podcast. To learn more about Mosaic Young Adults, visit us online at thisismosaic.org forward slash young adults. We hope this podcast is simply part of a greater conversation you have with Jesus. Enjoy the message. Stories. Um, I often mention Caleb and Obi. Um, partly because they're some of my best friends and partly because most of you know them already, so it's easy to put a face to them. But, but tonight, uh, I'm, I'm going to mention another one of my good friends, and his, uh, his name is Kevin Richardson. And now some of you might know Kevin as Jen Richardson's husband, um, or some of you may know him as the You're 40 and Still That Ripped. Uh, some of you might know him as the, uh, the creative director. Uh, Jen, you can tell him that. I said that later. Uh, uh, you might know him as the creative director at Mosaic, but I know him as K. Rich, the best man at my wedding. And so uh, Jen and Kev moved with their family down to Florida from upstate New York, maybe on four to five years ago. I, right? That's about, yeah, yeah, five years, almost five years. Okay, cool. I, I, right. And they, and they moved all their stuff down from upstate New York, and um, they were moving to a place uh, called Apopka. You might have heard of it, which at the time for me didn't even exist on the map. Um, I, I'm from New York, so all of Florida was kind of new for me. And I remember uh, getting a text from one of our pastors at the time um, asking if uh, I would be willing to help move, help them move uh, into their house. And I don't know if you're like this, but uh, when I get a text like that, my first thought is, I'd love to, but, and, uh, you know, someone else will help them. And I've got things to do, and it's my only day off. You know, I come with all these excuses, and, and but I was feeling particularly helpful that day. So I decided, sure. Why not? And at the time, I was living at Hunters Creek, um, and so I took the turnpike, which didn't even fully reach to Popka there at the time, so it took like a lifetime, which is about 45 minutes. And while I get there, right, so I'm getting there, I'm driving up in my busted up old 2007 Chevy Cobalt, and I see the moving truck. But what I don't see is literally anyone else's car. <laughs> okay, um, and for a moment I thought, am I early? And I go, no, I'm 30 minutes late. <laughs> and so then I thought uh, the only meme I could think of was that Simpsons meme with a little boy in the bus going, I'm in danger. Um, that's what I thought because I'm 30 minutes late. No one else is there. So it must just be me. And so here's something you need to know about Kevin. He is freakishly strong. His motto is no pain. Let's do it again. Here's what you should know about me. I am not freakishly strong. In fact, my motto is work smarter, not harder, okay? So turns out it's just me and Kev, and we're moving all the stuff from the moving truck into the house. And I, I remember distinctly after already shakingly trying to pick up, there's like massive, like it was, they had this heavy wooden uh, picnic table and it's beautiful. It's great. I think you still have it, but uh, yeah, you do. And I remember being like, my muscles can't carry this. Like I'm just this tiny five, five person. I can't do anything. And I remember Renault, who's our lead pastor, he calls Kevin and he goes, man, how's everything going? And you know, Kev's trying to be nice because in front of me, he says, things are going great. Things are going fine. And so Renault goes, oh, so who, who showed up? And so Kevin goes, Caesar. And then there was like this audible silence, like, like, like Rayo was waiting for another person. And then uh, he goes, that's great. Who else? No one. 
And it's just me and him. And I just remember through the phone hearing Renault begin to laugh. And if you've ever heard Renault laugh, it is just this like, you don't know if you should be offended or if you should join in. And this is moment, I'm feeling a little embarrassed because I'm here on my day off lifting things that my muscles can't cash checks on and feeling somewhat embarrassed because I'm not really sure I'm as helpful as I was hoping to be. See, what I did not know that on that day was that the Richardson family would soon become like family to me. That Orion, Finley, and Rowan went, would, would go from calling me Mr. Caesar to Uncle Caesar to Uncle Taco to Uncle Smoothie. That there's a hierarchy, believe it or not, certain foods have a hierarchy in that family. And Jen has become like a sister who I've cried with and prayed for. And then she's challenged me and built me up because we're family. And Kevin was the best man at my wedding. And he's my permanent CrossFit partner. And he makes sure that I'm the best husband I can be to Rachel. But what I learned most importantly on that day, what I've increasingly learned every time when I offer to help people in anything that they need is that loving others well often requires more of me than I want to give them. Okay, loving people well often requires more than I want to give them. One of my favorite uh, authors, his name is C.S. Lewis, and I've cited him many times, and he says this about loving people. He says, to love at all is to be vulnerable. So in order to love people well, or for, for Lewis, to love people at all requires us to be in a place of vulnerability. A space where things may not work too well, may not work out too well for us, may not feed our wishes and our desires. And, and I get it. Many of us have chosen to try and help others and have been met with ingratitude, selfishness, and forgetfulness. Maybe you've tried to help someone and they've ghosted you even though you showed up for, the, uh, showed up for them time and time again. Maybe they've shown judgment towards you even though you were graceful towards them. I mean, let's be honest, loving people is easy, right? No, loving people can be really hard. And so C.S. Lewis continues in that same thought. He says, to love at all is to be vulnerable. And he goes, listen, love anything. It's a little bit morbid, but it has a point. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one and nothing not even an animal, like you dog lovers or cat lovers. You must carefully wrap it round with hobbies and little luxuries in routine and avoidances of entanglement and then lock it up in the casket or coffin of your own selfishness. So what Lewis is getting at here is the reality that if you choose to engage in a life of selfishness, you, it is like you locking your heart up in a coffin and in doing so, you will not be able to love others well. In fact, you won't be able to be loved well because your heart will be locked away from others. But what many of us in this room yearn for is healthy, vibrant, loving relationships. But in order for that to actually occur, we must abandon the continual cultivation of selfishness. And I don't think many of us particularly even like that word, right? Selfishness. But what Lewis wrote is rather prophetic because even though he wrote this, these same words 60 years ago, it rings ever so true in our culture today because what Lewis calls selfishness in his works is what our culture calls self-love. 
You see, we begin to only delve into activities or opportunities that make us feel good. We, we only buy into routines that make us feel good. Sorry. We only entertain relationships or friendships with people centered on the premise of how good that person makes me feel. And anybody who doesn't make me feel positive, anyone who is negative is either labeled toxic or just dropped altogether under the principle of upholding principles. But what Lewis is saying is that if we live our lives continuously in that way, we will never truly be able to love anyone because loving well requires more of ourselves than we feel comfortable giving to others. Now this desire for vibrant, loving relationships is not just a human desire, it's actually God's desire for us. In the midst of a world that is prone to self-centeredness, we're actually gonna hear the heart of God for the family of God through Paul's words tonight. Paul makes this challenging statement, and you heard it already, but he says this in Galatians 6, verse 2, that stands in complete opposition to selfishness. He says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now, in order for Paul to make that request of a person, he has to be able to get that person's eyes off of themselves so that they can finally see the needs of others. And so Paul's goal in his whole letter to the Galatians was to remind them that living within the grace of God will always be far better than living under the law. Actually, Paul goes to great lengths to remind the brothers and sisters in Galatia that the gospel of grace is so much better than the law because the gospel of grace reveals that because of Christ, we have been set free from sin, death, performance, and the law. That because of Christ, we are brought into the family of God, making us sons and daughters of God Almighty. And because of Christ, the Holy Spirit now resides fully in us and our lives are marked by love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But part of the problem, though, of living under the law is that it requires you to be very me-focused. Because legalism is all about performance. All eyes are on you. Everything you do is centered on you and making sure you're good with God. Now, as last week we talked about, the flip side uh, to, to legalism is license. It's the thought that, that because you're a recipient of God's love, that it's okay for you to occasionally give in to your passions because you know what? Hey, it doesn't matter what I do. God still loves me, but both are focused on you. And what I think Paul is moving us to see is that both of those realities are not meant for you. That we've been set free to be with God and walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. And Paul's command for us to bear one another's burdens is birthed from the understanding that if we've been truly set free from being slaves to the law and that we've been set free from being slaves to our passions and our desires, and if we have the Holy Spirit fully dwelling in us, we are now in a place to lift our heads and our eyes off of ourselves and look around us and hear God's voice and obey when he says, bear one another's burdens. Now, this command that he says to bear one another's burdens comes within the context of a hypothetical situation that he, he presents to them. He says, let's read it together again in verse one. 
brothers, meaning brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Now, the scenario is that if someone is caught in sin, that they would be restored uh, in a spirit of gentleness. Now, that word caught, it doesn't mean what it means in the English. When you catch someone, it's usually like someone caught off guard, like, oh, I, you're doing something and I've caught you in the act of it. But, but in the Greek, the caught means that, that something has overtaken you. And so Paul is simply stating that if there's anybody in your community that is overtaken, whether by their own volition or by accident, that, that you are to restore them in a spirit of gentleness. Now, this verse seems like a random scenario, but it's actually not. As we were in our teaching team, this meeting in Cass, you may know her. She brought a contextual reality to this text that I've never seen before. See, remember, Paul is writing, right, to brothers and sisters that have been convinced that they should live under the law. And what Cass pointed out to us was that we have no way of knowing how many of the people gave in to those lies. And we don't know how many people were able to continue walking in the truth of the gospel. But here's what we would know for sure. That when Paul's letters reached the church, it would be read in front of the congregation. And it would be read over the people. And so there would be people in that room. They're in the room. Could you imagine for a second? They're here. Just, just you know, okay, read the letter from, from Paul. And as they're reading Paul's letter, they're realizing, wait, the problem is me. I'm the problem. And now there's a big issue at hand here, right? Because they're hearing this letter and they're, 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 they're realizing they're the enemy. They're the ones who've rejected the grace of God. They're the one that the, they're the reason why Paul's even written the letter. And you'll know that some of the letter was written about circumcision. So there are some men in that room that would hear that letter and they would have actually gone through with the circumcision. So you, know, you have guys who have a physical reminder that they rejected the grace of God. They would have a physical reminder that they sinned against God. And so Paul says, hey, listen, just so you know, it's about to get crazy. Like you're about to like, it's about to get real messy in a second because once this letter is done, you have one of two choices. Get it right or get out. And it's just like, you know, like it's just gonna get kind of messy. And so he says, listen, instead of giving in to that voice that says, if they're in sin, get rid of them. Instead of giving them the side eye and moving towards judgment and condemnation, restore them in a spirit of gentleness. And when we, we hear restore and gentleness, we may be tempted to think uh, it's something like, hey, it's okay. <laughs> I know you didn't mean to do it. <laughs> it we'll, we'll figure it out. And that's actually not what Paul says. That, that word restore gives the image of lovingly correcting someone with the intention of making whole that which was broken. The image that Paul creates actually is the, the best way to envision it is a doctor setting a bone that is broken. Uh, I don't know if any of you have broken a bone or dislocated a bone. Oh, fuck, you know what I'm saying? Like that's, that was real fun, that was it. You know, and so it's painful. But that word restore is also in the active present. And I promise it has a reason. 
It indicates that this is an action, that restoration is an action that it has to be ongoing, not a simple action. It's a process that has to go, undergo a process until it is complete. Essentially, the job isn't done until you hear the bone into place. And so Paul is saying that no matter how painful, no matter how messy, no matter the cost, restoring your brother and sister to the family of God is necessary and must be completed. But sometimes we can see the people, our community, moving away from the kingdom of God, enslaving themselves. And what do we do? We choose to be silent. Because silence is the easiest course of action because it requires nothing of you. But Paul is urging us, he's actually encouraging us right now to fight the tendency to ignore sin. And he's doing that because he because our brothers and sisters who have fallen in sin need us. That's self-righteously, but they need us in love. And if only we understood or would remember how serious sin truly is, because sin not only hurts the person in the sin, but it also eats away at the community that the person belongs to. Because sin often leads people into guilt and shame, which then causes them to feel like they need to be removed from the community. And let me tell you, Satan would love nothing more than to get that person all alone and have a field day with them. But can I tell you that bearing one another's burdens, this invitation by Jesus protects the very heart and soul of the people that we love most. Charles Spurgeon the Prince of Preachers, the British preacher says this about our relationship with those who are overcome by sin. It says, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let not anyone go unwarned, unprayed for. And what he's saying is not that he wants anybody to go to hell. What he's saying is that if you see anybody going in that direction, that, they should, that you would literally grab them by the knees and beg them to stay. That if there are people in your community that have left this community or are trying to leave this community that, and, and you have chosen to stay quiet, Paul says, go after them. That their heart and their soul matters because they're your brother and your sister and that staying quiet is no longer an option for the family of God. And we can try and get out of this, but, but, but Paul says that this is a job for those who are spiritual. It's not for the elite. By spiritual, Paul means those of us who walk by the spirit, which really means anybody who's who has placed their faith in Jesus and is a child of God, you have the spirit of God in you. So each of us in this room, if you follow after Jesus, this is your call. Paul says, go after them and fulfill the law of Christ. Now, what is this law of Christ? Well, the best way to understand the law of Christ is to see it as the law of love. John 13, 34 says this, it provides a good summary. It says, Jesus tells the disciples that we are to love one another as he has loved us. So in other words, when we carry others' burdens, we are fulfilling the law of love. And the law of love is to be the new standard in which we, the people of God, are to measure ourselves by. And this is what it looks like, okay, to bear one another's burdens and to fulfill the law of love just to get practical. We should be asking ourselves often, am I looking, am I loving others the way that Christ loves me? 
Am I bearing people's burdens? When I hear of someone's brokenness, am I moved to prayer for them? And am I offering myself to them as a burden carrier? Am I going to my brother and sister and reminding them of the beauty of the gospel of grace? Am I telling them that they are meant for the kingdom of God and not for the kingdom of this world? Am I showing up for them even when they want to run away? Am I loving them when they return to me with anger? See, we're called to love like Christ, but it is not easy. And it comes with obstacles. And in verse three, Paul says that if anyone thinks he is something when they are nothing, he deceives himself. I hated reading that. But essentially it says, you're not as important as you think you are. You see, part of loving people well is seeing yourself and others correctly. In the world of psychology, uh, Jean Piaget, uh, he was a Swiss psychologist and he contributed a lot to the development of child psychology. And he noted in his works that children below the age of two think that the universe revolves around them. Now, you don't need a PhD to find that out. Just go serving kids ministry, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's... mm. But the idea of the universe revolving around them is so embedded in their brains that they literally believe that objects and people only exist for as long as they're staring at them. Now, here's the thing. We live in a world that cultivates that level of thinking, but as adults. Like, we know we're not dumb. We know that people still exist even when we're not around. But it's so easy for us to live out the practice of out of sight, out of mind. You see, we have no space to think of others when we're thinking too much of ourselves. So then we only see people, then we only go to people, and we only entertain people as a tool for our own pleasure instead of seeing people who are needing of love. And so the way that gets played out often is connected to our pride. When we see someone like someone fall, Like Paul says in verse one, we can easily be tempted to think more highly of ourselves. You know what I mean? Someone falls into sin, you're like, thank God that it happened to me. I know I'm a mess up, but not as much as that person. And sometimes we think so highly of ourselves that we can even catch ourselves saying, if they got themselves into it, they can get themselves out. See, what happens eventually is that we start to use people as a point of reference. We, we use them to deem ourselves worthy. Isn't that what happens when we're on Instagram? <laughs> like how many of us use Instagram? You don't have to raise your hand. You know who you are. I'm included. That we use Instagram to compare our lives to others. And not, and not like, I wish I had their life and that may happen, but as much as, wow, they're really into that. And then suddenly you just feel like the self-righteousness, like I'm better than them. And Paul challenge us, challenges us in verse four and five to not do that. This is what he says. He offers us as, a, as an alternative. He says, if you think you're too good for things, this is what you should do. Let each one of you test his own work and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. And so what Paul is saying is that instead of examining the lives of others, look at your own life. 
If you're looking at people's lives to find ways in which you're better than them, then you need to stop it right now because what most people miss when they engage in the act of comparison is that they're actually enslaving themselves to that person. If your value is determined by someone's mistakes or failures, you will live and die by how well you can put them down or how well you can puff yourself up. You can't love someone who you're trying to bring down. It's hard to carry someone's burdens when you're only looking at their pain and their problems as reasons to make yourself feel good about yourself. And when we examine our own lives, Paul says, this is gonna happen. He says, you won't boast in them, but you'll be able to boast in yourself. Now that seems confusing because boasting in myself sounds like pride and what we just said is that an obstacle to loving people is pride. So what does Paul mean when he says, go and boast? See, Paul says this same word in verse 14 in the same chapter. He says, far be it from me to boast, the same word as in verse four, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. He also writes in 1 Corinthians, he says, let him who boasts, if you're gonna boast, boast in the Lord. And then he writes again in Romans 15, he says, in Christ Jesus, I have a reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. I will not presume to speak for anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. The boasting that Paul is talking about in verse four is centered fully on the cross of Christ and the work of the power of the spirit in his life. He's not boasting about anything in himself. And that's why he says, listen, if you think you're something, you're lying because as children of God, the only thing worth boasting about is that Jesus is doing something in your life. You see, what ultimately gets in the way of you and I loving people well is that we take our eyes off the gospel and we forget everything that, we, that God has done for us. And so we interact with one, one another thinking that we deserve more or that we've earned it. And then we start comparing ourselves to one another but that dramatically shifts when we look at the gospel. Jesus tells a parable in the gospel of Luke. It's about a Pharisee and a tax collector. You might've heard of it. Now, just to give you context, societally, the, the, the Pharisee was the one who was seen as holier than thou and was respected in the community. But the tax collector, they were the outcasts. They were the worst of the worst. So let me, leave, or let me read you a few lines of Jesus' parable. He says, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed this, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Sounds like he thinks he's more than what he is. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. And then you hear the tax collector standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. See, when we remember the gospel, we remember we're not as important as we think we are. In fact, we remember that we once were among the lowest of the low. When we remember the gospel accurately, our pride, our arrogance will begin to dissipate. And when we walk with the spirit and we're reminded of God's deep love for us, despite all of our failures and mistakes, we're able to take off our pharisaical garb of arrogance and take on and put on the humility of the tax collector. 
Instead of us going around to other people and being like, I'm better than you, better than you, better than you, you can suck it. We can say, God, thank you for your endless mercy towards me, a mess up. And when that happens, we're able to love people who are hurting instead of us using them or casting them aside. As children of God, as free children of God, we're able to put our heads on a swivel like Bob Goff would say, and we're able to search at all times, looking for the Pharisee and looking for the outcast because that used to be us. And we get to look at the Pharisee and say, hey, hey, listen, come and taste true freedom. You don't have to live your life beating others down, but now you get to go and build others up. And then we go to look at the outcast and say, hey, listen, you don't have to stay out there. God wants you in the family of God. Come and experience the endless love of God. And instead of you beating up on yourself because you think you're an outcast, come and experience the endless love of God and invite all your friends while you're at it. And when you look at the scope of the gospel story though, you see that God is not just generous in our hearts, but he's actually generous externally as well. You see, Jesus cared for the internal burdens of the people around him, but he also cared for their physical burdens. Actually, when you read the Gospels, you'll see most of the time what Jesus was doing, more than teaching, was caring for the physical needs of the people around him. You see, what, the first century church is so interesting. And, and, and this is why I think many of us really should look back at church history uh, because we've, I think, forgotten a little bit of what was true of our ancestors. And, and the, the, the Christian faith spread like wildfire in the first century because the people of God knew that they were to live under the law of love and no one else was doing it. So everybody would be like, what is he doing? Why are they doing that? Let me ask questions. You see, the early church, they didn't wait for someone to come to them with a need. They were always searching for it. The early church helped feed the poor and the widowed. The orphans would be adopted. Something I, I read recently, it blew my mind. There, are, there were sections in Rome where people would discard newly born babies. Okay, we're talking about like this big. They ain't gonna last long. They would just discard baby after baby on these streets. And so what the first century church would do is that they would go to those places, take the babies, adopt them, care for them, and raise them. Loving God for them wasn't just, I'm going to pray for you. Loving God says, I'm going to show physically and demonstrate God's love for those who are in need. And so the love of God was so radically demonstrated in these communities that people were like, I want to be part of that. Is that true of us today? Is that true of you and me? You see, sometimes we spiritualize the Christian faith to such a degree that our response to every need is simply, I'll pray about it, give you a word of encouragement, and I'll send you on your way. But Paul says sometimes we're going to have to put our money or our resources where our mouth is. The church has a bad rep and the community sometimes. Because they say you care for each other, but you expect outside people to do it. Paul says that it shouldn't be the case. And he talks about our interaction with money. And he says that there's something unique about money that reveals the orientation of our hearts. Because like you, I'm guessing, we work for money, right? And so when you pay your bills and everything is done, said and done, 
you want, you feel like you, it's up to you to see how you spend it. And when we ultimately decide how we spend our money, who is usually the person that benefits from your money? Me. <laughs> and listen, it's okay that if you buy a shirt or go to a movie or buy a game, invest in a house, how, I don't know how much money you guys make, but the problem is not that we spend money on ourselves. The problem that Paul is pointing out in this text is that we rarely, if ever, see money or really any of our resources as an opportunity to serve the family of God. And so Paul challenges the Galatians to consider how to use their resources. He presents a kingdom principle. This is what it says in Galatians 6, 7, and 8. Chapter 6, verse 7 and 8. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap, reap eternal life. Did you catch the principle? It's one that goes beyond the Bible, but it's here. It says, what you sow, you will. What you sow, you will. Thank you. Just checking in. And sowing, if you know anything about agriculture, requires time, energy, and resources. And so Paul says, listen, in the family of God, in your communities, and he's saying it to us, in your community groups, in your small groups, in your homes, in the church, at Mosaic, wherever it is that you might be, within the family of God, there are many needs and you can choose to do one of two things. You can, turn to, you can choose to turn a blind eye or you can choose to move into the needs of others. And his challenge to the Galatians and to us is this. He says, if you sow to yourself, if you sow into your own kingdom, if you sow into your own pleasure and your desires, do you know what you'll be end up with? Most likely, you'll end up just with yourself. You sow, you reap what you sow. So if you sow into yourself, that's all you get. But if, if, you invest in the lives of others. If you invest your resources, you will reap a community of love that cares for the needs of others. You will be part of tangibly demonstrating God's love towards people who are in need. To get really practical, as you move on from tonight, I'd encourage you to look around your community and ask the Spirit of God, who can I help today? Is there anything I can take out of, is there anyone I can take out for a meal? Is there anyone that I can help cover a major cost? Is there someone that I just can spend time with? And you, you might actually just need to, instead of asking the Spirit of God, just start asking people in your community, is anybody here need help that I can help? Because there are people in this community who want to go to counseling but can't afford it. What would it look like for us as a community, I don't know, five of us, ten of us, to each of us donate $10 a week so they can go to counseling? There are people who need medicine and because their jobs don't provide it, they can't get on it. What would it look like for us to donate $20, $30 a month, 10 people, that's two, $300 to help someone be on medicine because they physically need to be on it. We can say, yes, I'll pray for you. I, I pray that God will heal you. But what if we just met that need? What would the outside world look at us like? Would they finally look at us and be like, I don't want to be part of that. Whatever that is. Because it's awesome. You see, when we remember the generosity of God towards us, we will begin to live generously towards others because we know how it feels to be provided for and cared for. But God, 
who loves us. And this is what I believe Paul has been leading us to this whole time. And it's ultimately to this one reality. That as you walk with the spirit of God, he will form you into a pillar of love. Do you know what a pillar is? It's a beam that holds up. It's a beam that, uh, that allows things to be placed on it. That you can lean things on it. And as pillars of love, what we get to do is look to our community. We get to even look outside into the world. And we get to say, hey, come lead on me. Come lean on me because I've experienced the radical love of God and now I want you to as well, but I want to first demonstrate it through my life. And listen, I know that seems so scary. I didn't even mean to say scary like that. I know it's scary. But people's burdens are heavy and you might ask yourself, am I, am I, am I qualified? But what if they don't want to like reciprocate it? Because like, I want this to be a two-way street. Can I lean on you while you lean on me? And yes, the scriptures say that, but sometimes you will, you will offer leaning on a per, like for, for someone to lean on you. And when you try to lean on them, they're like, whoop. And God says, it's okay. I'm not worried about them. You still have me to lean on. You might be thinking, listen, that person's burdens are so messy. My life is messy enough. I don't want to be in on that. Listen, these are all legitimate concerns, but the only way for us to be pillars of love is to see Jesus as the true and only burden bearer. When we look at him, we will see that, that, uh, that he saw our need and because of his selfless love, we were set free. He did not wait for somebody else to come into our story. He did not wait for somebody else to save us. He saw us in need and he came and helped us when we were at our lowest. He saw our needs and he met them. He carried the burden of our sin upon the cross, even though it was ours to carry. We can only proclaim the message of burden bearing when we remember how radically loved we are and how free we are in Christ. We are able to love others even if it costs us everything because Christ first did that for you and for me. He now invites you. Hear this, he's inviting you where you sit right now. This is not judgment. I'm not trying to be more heavy than I need to be, but I, I just want you to hear this command is a communal, but it is individual. He wants you to demonstrate his love for people by choosing to right now, today, carry another's burdens. What would it look like if every new person that came into this place said, I don't know what y'all are singing about. I don't know half the words that Caesar just said, but all I know is that when I came into this place, this is the first time in my entire life where I was met with a love that is otherworldly. What would it look like for you to finally say, I don't have to hide my sin anymore because I'll be restored with the spirit of gentleness and no one will judge me and condemn me, but that they will come in my hour of need. What if we were a church that constantly said to one another, lean on me, how much healing would occur? How many people would be set free? How many needs would be met? I think you'd be surprised. I'd say there's about, give or take, 80 people here right now. If each of you were here for three people, 
It's what? I don't do math. What? 240. And then if that 240 did that three times over, like, like, do you, are you, this is, are you seeing what I'm saying? Be willing to carry the burden of one other person and you can change their whole lives. Not just theirs, but the people that they'll come in contact with. Because I don't know about you, but what this world needs more than anything is not better preachers, better singers, more excitable music, or more talented people. They need an encounter with the love of God. And we are God's plan A, and there's no plan B. God wants us to be a community of love and he's already showing us how to do it. He's just asking, will you bear the burdens of those you love most dear? Let's pray. God, you are so generous to us. Tonight's words are so challenging and convicting and yet how exciting the opportunity would be to be a people that could be the hands and feet of Jesus, that, would, that we would be able to be a place of radical love, that we would be a place that when people come in, they leave transformed because we were the hands and feet of Jesus, that we help usher them into experience the powerful transformative power of God. Like what if, I don't know, but God, I'm excited. It's not by chance that we're in Galatians 6. It's not by chance. I, I couldn't have planned this even if the team were trying to. But I just know, Father, without a sh shadow of a doubt, you are seeking to prepare this community to transform the landscape, not of just Winter Garden, but of Orlando. God, help us be obedient. Would we open our wallets and say, God, do with it what you will? Would we open our homes and say, God, fill it as you will? Would we open our schedules and say, God, fill it as you will, so that we would be able to demonstrate the power of a loving and everlasting God? We build our life and establish it fully on you, Lord Jesus. Just help us, help us be obedient. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks again for spending some time with us on the Mosaic Young Adults podcast. Our hope for you is that Jesus will use this message you just received and direct your heart completely towards him. If you want to hear more messages like this one, please feel free to check out our past episodes and subscribe so you don't miss out on any upcoming episodes.